bunches of these alpha cards and they're put into little uh, different groups and I assume there are maps also there with them and they're for the purpose of asking you to volunteer to take a bundle and to distribute those in the area which is one way of informing the community that this is on and also of um, that they might be able to attend Alpha, that God would work through that process. So please consider that. If uh, I remember, I'll come back and mention that again in the message. So on the way out, in the table, in the foyer, there are some invitation cards. You might like to take a bundle. Um, if you haven't got one, then you might like to take just even one. If you can't do the effort of uh, walking around letterbox dropping, if you'd like to take just one and in take that with the intention of inviting someone. Don't take one unless you intend to do that. Please. We are going to read God's word together. We come this morning to the end of our series, the short series we've been doing on Romans, where we are focusing upon um, being transformed by the renewal of our mind and the exposure to God's word. It's an interesting chapter. We're going to read the whole chapter. And it's primarily a list of well over 30 names. But there are truths in it and things for us to note and to observe. Romans chapter 16. The Apostle Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sancria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help that she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me, and not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They're outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apollos, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the house of uh, Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all of the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. 
Timothy, my co-worker, sends, you his, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, Sosipata, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this epistle, this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings too. And now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known throughout the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. And everybody said, what a meaningful chapter. I hope and trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and therefore you have inspired it for the purpose of teaching, correcting, rebuking, training, that we might be fully equipped, that we might be transformed as followers of the Lord Jesus. Lord, give us an insight into this snapshot of a local church in Rome. Help us to reflect upon it, to learn from it, and to be changed to be like Jesus through it. We ask in his name. Amen. Came across these quotes. I was going to call this message initially, I was going to call it A Walk Among the Tombstones. Because these people are all dead. And there are these statements, epitaphs, about some of them. And I came across this and I should have thought I would share this with you. Here are some tombstone inscriptions. Here lies Lester Moore, four slugs from a 44. No less, no more. Oh, okay. That's in Tombstone in Arizona. Uh, this one is in Maine, in Lincoln in Maine. Sacred to the memory of Jared Bates, who died August the 6th, 1800. His widow, aged 24, lives at Seven Elm Street, has every qualification for good wife and yearns to be comforted. <laughs> this one's from New York. Underneath this pile of stones lies all that's left of Sally Jones. Her name was Briggs, it was not Jones, but Jones was used to rhyme with stones. <laughs> or finally, well, second finally, here lies Jane Smith, wife of Thomas Smith, marble cutter. This monument was erected by her husband as a tribute to her memory as a specimen of his work. Monuments of this style cost $350. <laughs> Self-serving, isn't it? Peter Creek tells the story of a Latin rite of when they came to bury the kings of Austria, the Austrian emperor. The people would carry the corpse of the departed emperor to the door of the great monastic church. They would strike the door and they would say, open. The priest on the inside would say, who is there? The people would reply, Emperor Karl, the King of Austria. The response from inside was, we know of no such person here. So the people would strike the door again. Who is there? Um, Emperor Karl, 
We know of no such person here. So they strike the door a third time. Open. Who is there? And the people say, Carl. And the doors open. Death is a great leveler, isn't it? Alexander the Great, according, watching his philosopher Diogenes one day, was looking at this whole collection of human skulls and bones and the philosopher had this puzzled look on his face and Alexander said to him, what are you looking for? Diogenes replied, that which I cannot find. The difference between your father's bones and those of his slaves. Huh. Death is the great leveller. I wonder what you want on your tombstone when that time comes. How would you like to be remembered? Told you I was sick. <laughs> These are like tombstones. Little statements, little vignettes about a people's life encapsulated in a phrase. I wonder how my life will be encapsulated. Loving husband. <laughs> Wonder how your life will be summarised. Of course, there will be a day when there will be a funeral and someone will give a eulogy and they'll say very nice things about you. Wonder what nice things they'll say. Wonder what nice things you would want them to say. Well, they're the choices we make now. That's the path we set. This chapter is filled with, as I said, over 30 names and there are these statements and things about it and there are various things that um, we can derive from it. Instead of hastening through the chapter, which is why I deliberately read the whole chapter, it reminds us generally about relationships and something about those relationships. It's a snapshot, that's what I've eventually called this talk. It's a snapshot of the early church, both in Rome, which is where primarily the first, you know, 20 or so verses are directed of Paul greeting the people in Rome. But from 21 on, there's a group of people who are with Paul in Corinth. There's about eight or so people mentioned there and a snapshot of what that church is like as well. So what can we learn from this snapshot of the church in Rome? The Holy Spirit has certainly, as I have said, inspired this chapter and he wants us to derive certain lessons from it. I have three lessons for us. Number one, it's pretty wordy, so we'll break it down into about four parts, the first one. The church is made up of very ordinary as well as diverse people who know the Lord, serve him, and accept one another. That's the truth I get out of these first 16 or these couple of paragraphs that list so many people. The church, local church is made up of ordinary, diverse people who know the Lord, serve him, and who accept one another. Let's just break that down a little bit. The local church is made up of ordinary, but different, diverse people. And we know that's true. Look around. Um, church is made up of ordinary, diverse people. Different ages, different ranks in society, different backgrounds, Different genders, well, both genders, male and female. Slave and free, wealthy, Jew and Gentile. This passage contains for us, if you look at it pretty closely, the majority are Gentiles and the majority are slave names. In the ancient world, if you were a slave, they had certain names that you would use for an aristocrat, a wealthy person, a 
person who was born free would never use the name of a slave. It just wasn't done. So that's how can we can tell that these names have been found in other documents and they're the names of slaves or they're not. There are certainly Jews and Gentiles. The Apostle Paul refers to a list of different people throughout it who are his fellow Jews, verse 7, 11 and 21. There are certainly the names of slaves scattered throughout the whole thing. There are even links with people of great distinction right in the middle of the chapter. In verse 10, there is this guy called Aristobulus. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Not greet him. Greet those who belong to the household of him. The household was both his family, but it also included all the servants and slaves. They were part of the household. Spurgeon, when he read that, makes the comment, where are you, Aristobulus? How come you're not greeted? Is it because you're not in the faith? Because Paul is greeting those who are certainly in Christ. Aristobulus was a man of distinction because he was the grandson of Herod the Great. Living in Rome now, he was a friend of Claudius the Emperor, who was just the previous emperor, just before Nero. And then just below him, verse 11, there's another man of great distinction, we know from other documents. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Once again, it's the household of him, not him, but those in his household. And he was likewise, he was a wealthy man, but he was a bad man, he was a wicked man according to ancient historians. And he was a man who was certainly very wealthy and he was a man who had great influence also on Claudius. When Nero became emperor, his mother, Agrippina, persuaded Narcissus to commit suicide, which he did. About three or four years after Romans was written, something like that. The interesting thing is that Aristobulus and Narcissus, when they died their households became part of the palace of the emperor. They became linked to the palace. So here are these very ordinary names, the names of some slaves, but here are some also names of people of distinction, people who moved in very high circles. And in fact, we know from um, archaeology that of all the names mentioned in this chapter, 13 of them also appear in inscriptions and documents connected with the emperor's palace. Philippians 4.22 certainly talks about the gospel having even come to Caesar's household. The gospel had gone everywhere, penetrated all areas of realms of society. And this listing of people, Paul greeting them, and I don't want to glorify the Apostle Paul, but it does indicate a heart for him. Here is a man with a massive intellect, a very strong theologian who knew the gospel and the truth and the implications of it, but who was also very relational. He kept track of these people. He's in Corinth and he knows these people are in Rome. He knows where they are. He's kept up with them. And so he sends personal greetings to them. Now, how that happened, we don't have any of the details. But it's also worth noting in verse 13, it says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Now, it's quite understandable that you can just simply read over that list and miss so many of these little interesting bits but back in Mark's gospel in chapter 15 there's a story of where Jesus is going to Golgotha to the crucifix being to be crucified and he's carrying his cross and he stumbles and they grab somebody out of the crowd what was that guy's name Simon Simon of Cyrene and Mark tells us that he had two sons 
just mentions them. Mark's Gospel, written probably in Rome, just mentions them in passing, which suggests that they were well known by the people who received this Gospel in the first place. Their names, Alexander and Rufus. Just mentioned, Rufus. And here we have in the Romans chapter 16, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? These little interconnections. Well, we could spend all day just being interested. What does it all mean for us? Well, certainly from different ranks, different backgrounds, different cultures, but all together. It's worth noting also that of this list of about 30, roughly, uh, people, about a third of them, nine women, are named. The Apostle Paul was not a misogynist. He was not a denier of women in their ministry. And in fact, he honours them. On numerous occasions, he talks about how the women not only worked, but they worked hard. You have Phoebe, who was a deacon, not a deaconess, a deacon. Paul breaks grammatical rules. It's in the masculine. Probably, therefore, referring to the actual official office. That here was a woman who was a deacon in the very early church, a woman of means. Um, she's able to help and support others, but at, at her heart, she's a servant. Very supportive of the Apostle Paul, very supportive of other people. Servant-hearted. There is Priscilla in verse 3, who not always, but on four out of probably the six occasions that she and her husband Aquila are mentioned in the New Testament, she's always first. Why is she first? Oh, we don't know. Was it because she was the leader? Maybe. Is it because she had stronger gifts or she came from wealth and background and so she had higher esteem? It was appropriate to name her first? Or was it her personality? She's just bossy and dominant, so they put her first. <laughs> Apparently there are women who are like that. I don't know any, but... <laughs> well, that's not true. I do know some... Not you. <laughs> bossy dominant women my daughter's capable of being bossy and dominant that's why she needs a strong man keep her chained I mean keep her under control I actually think uh, women need to be strong in this world because there's so much inappropriately biased against them uh, there is a great controversy about this next one in verse 7, but I'm going to give you my very best understanding. I've spent years looking at this. Greet Andronicus and Junia. Junia is feminine. Scholars want to debate that it's masculine. And there'll be people alive today, scholars walk on the earth, who actually think the Greek text should be masculine. I think they're completely wrong. Andronicus and Junia probably don't know, but probably a married couple. But look what it says about them. A, they're Jews. B, they've been in prison with Paul. And C, they were in Christ before Paul, converted before he was. And it says they were outstanding among the apostles. Now, that's why it's controversial. Here you've got a woman who's outstanding among the apostles in the first century. And people want to jump up and down and say, therefore, she was an apostle. Well, I think she was an apostle. She's outstanding among them. She's not one of the 12. We would use the words church planter. But what's acknowledged here is that here is a husband and a wife working together, doing significant things. And in fact, the apostles, the 12, thought they were outstanding at doing this. A man and a woman 
And in fact, I didn't say this, but Michael Bird, who was an Australian, who's returned to Australia, who is now lecturing, I think, down in Melbourne, has written several books on Phoebe. He says, Phoebe is the lady who not only carried the letter of Romans to Rome, but she was the one entrusted to actually teach it. If anybody had any questions, what did Paul mean when he said that? She was on the spot to answer it. Interesting theory, isn't it? Just to be really controversial, here is a woman teaching men. Yeah, I know. I know the verse that says it in Timothy, and I know the controversy around it. But in this passage, you have Paul acknowledging and honouring men and women for their work in the gospel. Let's go back to verse 7, and let me just clear up the junior thing. Andronicus and junior, I think it is a woman, probably is his wife, and I think they together are church planters. I don't think you can use that verse to justify women being elders or being pastors or being in leadership in the church. I don't think you can use that verse to justify it. I think you can use other verses for that. I think this is acknowledging that here are church planters. Did you know that when the Baptist church started, way back in the 16th century, that we had three officers in our church? We used to have pastors, elders, deacons, and the third category, it's in the Confessions of Faith, 1702 and 1689 and and the third one were called messengers. Elders, pastors, deacons, and messengers. What was a messenger? An apostle. What's an apostle? Someone who was sent out. A missionary. Sending them out. When the Baptist denomination started, we started as a missionary-focused organisation, denomination. We were sending people to the neighbouring villages to start churches. It's in our confessions of faith. Interesting, isn't it? Well, we're only copying the Apostle Paul. That's what they were doing as well, sending people out. So what do we learn from all of this, all of this diversity? Here is the local church is made up of ordinary, diverse people. What unites them? What holds them together? Well, they know the Lord. There are Jewish names, Greek names, Roman names. There are people from wealth, people from poverty, people from all different sorts of walks of life. Some people close to Paul. Some people known to us. Many people unknown to us, but all reported, all honoured, all affirmed, and all in Christ. In Christ or in the Lord is mentioned about 11 times. It dominates the descriptions. This diverse group of people have Jesus in common. That's still true in the church today. Once they were outside the kingdom, now they are inside the kingdom. There is that transfer and there is that difference. They're part of the family of God. They know God as Father, they know Jesus as their Lord, they know the Holy Spirit who is indwelling them and transforming them, and they know one another as brothers and sisters. They're a family. In Christ, everyone in Christ, there is no condemnation and no separation. Secondly, they serve him. Those in Christ serve him. You have that scattered through references like Paul in verse 3 and 9, excuse me, talks about fellow workers. Verses 4 and 7, he talks about fellow sufferers. In verses 6 and twice in verse 12, he talks particularly about those who work or worked hard together. Phoebe's called a servant, Aquila and Aquila, husband and wife, are serving together. And it's just a, a little aside, just an assumption that those who are in Christ are serving him. Oh, we've spoken about this before. It's what happened back in chapter 12, verses 6 to 8, where the Apostle Paul reminds us that we all have spiritual gifts. And we're to use them in the life of the body. 
the Apostle Peter says, um, as each one of you has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, do it as one speaking God's word. Whoever serves, do it as one serving by the strength that God gives. Why? So that in all things, speaking or doing, God is glorified through Jesus. Serving one another, serving the Lord, serving together, working hard. That's a snapshot of the early church. wonder how you're doing in that process. Thirdly, they accepted one another. All the way through, scattered through this is this. They're meeting in homes, they're meeting in houses, they've opened their doors to one another. Um, even particularly in verses 14 and 15, there's this listing of people and the Paul says, and all the others who are with them. It seems like the church in Rome was meeting in various houses scattered throughout the city, just like we can have in our area various different life groups, but somehow linked, united together. I don't think that these house churches, there was like a Jewish group and there was a Gentile group and there was a group of slaves and there was a group of the wealthy and there was a group of these other sorts and a group of those who were political connections with a palace or whatever. Because of chapters 14 and 15. Because all through there, the Apostle Paul is talking about these people from different perspectives and backgrounds trying to be accepting one another. They've been convinced in their own mind of that which is right or that which is not right, whether we should eat meat or not, whether we should drink wine or not, whether we should honour this day or not. It was, they were mixed. They were united. They were together. And there are these two wonderful you know, greetings as well. Verse 16, there's, uh, everybody is to greet one another with a kiss, a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. As I've said on, I don't know how many times, numerous occasions, the command is to greet one another. The holy kiss bit is a cultural manifestation of it. And for those of you who like to kiss one another, here is a warning. It's a holy kiss. What does that mean? Well, in their culture, it meant the men kissed the men. You up for it? The women kissed the women. The men didn't kiss the women, the women didn't kiss the men in their culture. In other cultures, they do it different, don't they? We have a British background, many of us. We have a very firm, nice, warm handshake. Whatever's culturally relevant, greet one another. And it's not just a verbal greeting of one another, there is some sort of visible, physical manifestation of it. That's a rub on the arm, slap on the back kicking the shins, whatever it is. So here is a snapshot of the early church as you read through this and reread through it and meditate upon it. Extending hospitality to one another. People of diverse backgrounds and interests putting all of that aside because of their commonality in Jesus and being enriched by one another. You ever had that experience? Of course you have. You follow Jesus, you'll be enriched the diversity that he places in a church you'll also be stretched and you'll also be frustrated and it's all part of the divine plan about growing you to be like Jesus it's a snapshot of the early church opening our hearts and homes well what about you 
Just like that early church, that early snapshot, just meeting together like this is necessary. Don't forsake the assembling together of yourselves. But it needs to be broken down into smaller groups, and that's why we have life groups. Are you in a life group? Thought about it? Want to be? Let me encourage you to join one if you're not. Fill in the yellow card and say, I'd like to join a life group. And it might take a little while to get there, and we may have to form some new groups, and it may take a while to connect you with current groups. Whatever. Put your name down on the list. Let's have a long list of people who are wanting to get into life groups and whatever it takes, let's work hard at it, getting everybody into a group. If you're not in a life group, yesterday at our men's breakfast, men's ministry in the morning, we spoke about accountability groups, of connecting up with one, two or three other people, of being close and asking various questions, holding each other account, journeying, doing life together. Whether in ministry groups or whatever, small groups, that's where this can fit in as well, of doing that together with others. Well, let's move on. The local church is not only a diverse range of people who know the Lord, serve him and accept one another. Secondly, the Apostle Paul transitions in verses 17 to 20 to this sudden warning. And initially it's a bit of a shock, but then you stop and think about it. The local church is a target in a spiritual battle. That's the second point. We are a target in a spiritual battle. There was a, um, a seminary professor, a theological professor, who got his class one time studying the New Testament. He said, we're going to read through the whole New Testament in this semester. What I want us to do as we work our way through the New Testament is write down a list of the main topics that we come to and to collate them as we go and see which one receives the highest amount of attention. Which topic, which issue does the New Testament address more than any other topic? And the results surprised them. Wasn't love, loving one another? Wasn't prayer, praying for one another? Wasn't even about unity so much or money or lots of other things you might have expected. The number one predominant teaching in the New Testament is a warning against false teachers, a warning against false doctrine. I haven't verified it, but I've just done a quick mental skip through. And every New Testament book author, every New Testament author certainly does address this issue. Jesus on numerous occasions does it. <clears throat> you know, wolves coming in amongst the sheep. Beware of false prophets. You'll know them by their fruit. Uh, Jesus even predicts at the end in Matthew 24, he talks about before he returns, there's many false Christs and many false prophets will arrive seeking to deceive many Peter talks about it, Jude talks about it, John talks about it, Paul talks about it. And here is Paul again talking about this very real thing. It's a spiritual battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And I'm sure that's why the Apostle Paul inserts it here because in the midst of, here is a snapshot of the local church of you're on the inside, you're loving each other, you're serving together, you know the Lord together. Well, the evil one is on the outside and he's trying to sneak in or to grab you and pull you away. It's a very real danger. And so the Apostle Paul, in contrast to chapters 14 and 15, in 14 and 15, you dealt with the weak in a sensitive, gentle, gracious way. In chapter 16, dealing with false prophets, it's quite the opposite of being sensitive. It's quite severe. Now, this is not a word to everybody, but it is a word generally to the church. I urge you, brothers and sisters, generally, the church, Watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way, contrary to the teaching, contrary to the gospel that you've learnt. Keep away from them. 
The Apostle Paul goes on to say that we should not only watch out for them, we should recognise them. How do you recognise them? Well, they're self-serving. They don't want to submit to Jesus, they don't want to honour him, and they don't want to follow the gospel. Their strategy, note this, the Apostle Paul talks about, is they use smooth talk and flattery. They are nice, they are polite, they are likeable, and they smile a lot. I haven't had a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon knock on my door who wasn't like that. They're nice people. They're likeable. And they're wrong. And they're dangerous, spiritually. So what I'm saying is, the Apostle Paul is saying to you generally, stay away. Do not engage. Unless you have been equipped, unless you've been trained, unless you have some resources. Because their target, particularly, are those who are young in the faith. They seek to pull you aside. Sheep, treat them like wolves. Don't be rude. Don't be offensive. But be on guard and be clear. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. And then he gives this wonderful assurance, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's the ultimate truth. We're involved in a spiritual battle now. Satan, who was defeated on the cross by the Lord Jesus, one day at the end he will be bound and then cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. Between now and then, he is still active, wounded, but not declaring that he is defeated. And he is seeking to penetrate churches, he is seeking to undermine the gospel, and we need to be on guard. But the ultimate outcome is, at the end, God will crush him. Genesis 3.15, under his foot. But the Apostle Paul is saying, that ultimate end of Satan can be our experience now. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God does the crushing, but it's under our feet. It's God protecting the church, and it's Satan being resisted, the false teachers being defeated, resisted, kept out. There is a biblical, theological, doctrinal norm for standards to be maintained on. And the Apostle Paul, I think, is referring to that. Time is going. Let me hasten to the end. The local church is made up of normal, ordinary people, diverse backgrounds, love the Lord, serve him and accept one another. The local church is also a target in the spiritual battle. We need to be on guard, recognising them, avoiding them, unless trained and equipped, knowing and being assured God will grant ultimate victory through Jesus. Thirdly and finally, the local church is for the glory of God. It's not about us, it's about him. Chief end of man is glorify God and enjoy him forever. The gospel is not about us, it's not about our happiness, it's about him. The gospel tells us things, reveal things about him, how kind and gracious and loving he is. And of course he does that to us and through us, but ultimately it's about him. The local church is for the glory of God. And the way we bring glory to God is by proclaiming the gospel, distributing alpha leaflets, letting other people know about the gospel of Jesus, inviting them to come. And if you've never been, you coming. That's according to biblical revelation and it results, Paul says in verse 26, in obedience. The gospel results in obedience. Transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, transformed 
by the word of God and by the power of the gospel to be followers of the Lord Jesus. Well, I haven't said everything that you could say about this chapter, but there's a fair bit in it. Let me conclude by saying this. The Apostle Paul, through this chapter, on numerous occasions, has referred to households, families, or couples. And there is a man whose name is Tom Mercer. He wrote a book called 8 to 15. 8 to 15. Um, Your world delivered. He says that all of us have somewhere between 8 and 15 people either biologically or in very close social networks with us, whether it's work or neighbours or social, whatever, 8 to 15 people. And that 8 to 15 people, his thesis is, they're the ones we should be praying for. They're the ones we should hope that God will open the door, that we can take the opportunity to share the gospel or give an invitation or whatever it is, 8 to 15. Let's make a list. And they become your prayer targets. And see how God can work through you into your social network. This chapter is a chapter full of names. And I bet many of them didn't think that they were going to be recorded in the inspired word of God and they would be read about for millennia. But God knew. And God knows your name. And that you're important to him. And that he sent his son to rescue you from sin's judgment and penalty. He's got a very important role for you to do, to connect in with a local church, to be transformed, to get to build relationships with other people, to serve him in the context of the local church. But he's got a very important role for you to do, not just in the church, but in the home, raising children, raising the next generation, being his servant. Look for ways how you can serve the Lord. As we began, so... What one sentence would you like to be recorded at your funeral? In Christ, with Christ, faithful, a hard worker, hospitable, servant-hearted. What's the word, the phrase? Pick it and work at it. We're going to pray. Would you, let's stand together, I think. Let's pray. This passage reminds us, Lord, that you are a God who cares about people. You care about each of us individually. That you've even recorded specific names of individuals in your word. So too you know us and you know our name. And just like these people say, you have a purpose for us to be in Christ, to know him, to be part of a local church and to be serving in that context and to be opening our hearts to one another, greeting, welcoming, accepting one another. We acknowledge, Lord, that we're in a spiritual battle and we pray that you would protect us, help us sometimes to simply avoid, to resist, And for some of us, sometimes, to actually engage. Ultimately, Lord, it's all for your glory. We pray that you would glorify Jesus, that you would achieve your purposes, and that you would do it through ordinary, diverse people, just like us.
we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said? We're going to sing, and at the end of singing, if you would like to come forward for prayer, if God's touched your heart, if you want to find out more about our church, if you want prayer for any specific need, if you want to receive...